The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. We've been looking at uh, satanic attack. We've been looking at spiritual warfare. And um, what I wanted to let you know is I'm going to have, the, I put about a dozen sets of notes over there uh, that are in all the, with all the detail in it. This would be good for you to put away and look at once in a while because we are in a spiritual warfare according to the word of God. We face the enemies, three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and they correspond to the three members of the Trinity. I want to show you how. Uh, there's these opposition by the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is a system that Satan has created in order to rob us to, to, uh, and to work in our lives in ways that he wants to. Notice this, Holy Spirit is to be the source of our desires, according to the word of God. The flesh produces opposing desires. The flesh opposes, produces uh, desires that oppose the desires of the spirit. Galatians 5.17 says this, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. It's a fascinating thing here. It says that there's two, these two sets of desires, the, and he actually calls them lusts. The, the word in the original language is lust. The spirit lusts against the flesh, and the flesh lusts against the spirit. Well, this idea of lust means your, your ultimate desire, the desire that wins the day, uh, the, the greatest desire you have at any given moment. Well, the, the flesh produces desires in us to oppose the desires of the Spirit because the Holy Spirit was sent. If you remember, the Father sent the Son to die for us, but then he gladly sent the Spirit to open our eyes so that we could see Christ and put our faith in him. And so we have, first of all, the first enemy that the Bible talks about is the flesh, which is just our fallen nature. And we have desires that oppose God. Maybe you don't, but the rest of us do. And so we, we struggle with these, and we have to oppose them. And then secondly, the Father is to be the object of our love. The satanic world system, which is referred to in Scripture, as in Scripture, the satanic world system is designed to misdirect our love to the things in the world. Have you noticed how uh, commercials on TV are seeking to grab your heart? They actually want you to love this product. You're thinking, why should I love the toothpaste? I mean, what's the big deal? But of course, when a Tesla comes along, it's a little easier to grab your heart, isn't it? Well, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 16 says, Do not love the world. It quite literally, stop loving the world and the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Those are opposing uh, loves. And he goes on, he says, for all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Those are the the categories within the world system. They're all designed in this way, that some of them are referred to as the lust of the flesh, some are referred to as the lust of the eyes, and the others are referred to as the boastful pride of life, which means the fact that I feel totally confident in what I have produced and what I can do in this world. The world's always trying to convince you that you can accomplish anything you want to. You don't need to trust God. And what God does is he produces things in our lives. And what is the great commandment? Jesus was asked this. What's the greatest commandment of all? 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is what we've been called to do, is to love God with all of our heart. And yet this world system is constantly putting things before our eyes that says, this is what you ought to love. This is what has true value. And then the third, the son, is to be the object of our trust, which is just another word for faith. Faith and trust are a translation of the same Greek word. We trust God and we love God. We trust Christ and we love Christ. And we, we are trusting him means we have faith in him. We believe the father's testimony about the son. First John chapter five tells us that God has given a testimony concerning his son and he wants us to believe him. He wants us to believe what he says about the son. And in fact, this is what he says. This is the testimony, John says. He has given to us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Now, most of you know, in John 17, when Jesus is praying to the father, he says to the father, this is the purpose of eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So God gives us eternal life so that we could know him and so that we could know his son. And that's what we received from him in Christ Jesus. So notice in 1 Peter chapter 5, it says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. How do you resist him? Being firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. In other words, there are times when you suffer. There's times when you have hard times and you experience real trials. And you wonder if God still loves you. Until you finally come to the place where you realize these are expressions of his love for us. The fact that he takes us through these kind of things and purifies our faith and deepens our confidence in him and keeps us in the love of God. And so these three enemies are related to the three persons of the Trinity. Sometimes these are called the ungodly Trinity because there are three of them and they oppose the very things that God is doing in our life. And so what, we're going to, what we have been looking at are the attacks of Satan in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 5. So I'm going to have you turn there. Ephesians 6, I'm sorry. Ephesians chapter 6. If you'll turn there, please, to the 6th chapter of Ephesians. And let me just read from verse 10 down to the end of this section, down in a ways. He says, finally, that is this, this preacher, when he says finally, he actually means finally. I remember I used to hear this guy preach and he would always say finally about halfway through the sermon. So that meant, well, I've got another half to give you. So if I've preached for an hour, I've got another hour to go. But, but Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That is his, defeat, his deceitful scheming against you. He comes against you in ways that you don't recognize. He grabs your heart. He wants you to think and feel in certain ways. He goes on, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. The evil day is when Satan comes against you. And you may think, well, he's never come against me. Oh, no, that's the good sign that he has come against you when you don't know it because he is very sneaky 
and he comes to get you thinking in a certain way. One of the words that are used to describe his attacks on us is our thoughts, naemata. That is, he actually suggests thoughts to us. He suggests to us how we ought to be thinking as we live the Christian life. And uh, they're always wrong. And we're going to see what they are in just a second. And then he says in verse 14, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins, that is, stand firm in this battle with Satan and his minions. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Now he's going to talk about how you put on the armor. Having girded your loins with truth, having put on the, the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with, with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the word of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The word of the Spirit there is, the sword of the Spirit, rather, I'm sorry, is, is a word, that when it says the word of God, it's talking about the very sayings of God, what God has said. He wants you to know what he has said. He wants you, when you're riding your motorcycle down the highway, to be quoting scripture to your own heart. He really does. He wants you, when you're alone, he wants you to be talking to yourself, preaching the gospel to your own heart, and telling yourself what God has called you to think, what he has called you to do when Satan comes against you. He goes on to talk about prayer and some other things, and we're going to stop right there, verse 17, the helmet of salvation. And so what I want to, what I want to look at today, this is the second and final part of this short little topical series, because this is an exposition, this is, this is topical teaching, and I love it. And so I want you to get this. I think this is so important. This has been one of the most helpful things I ever learned maybe 40 years ago was about the attacks of Satan and what he wants to do with our lives, how he wants to take advantage of us. And so his specific attacks on Christians, we are told, are this. He tempts them to be independent of God. He wants you to act independently of God as though you don't need him, as though you don't need to be trusting him and relying upon him. He tempts us to act independently of God. In Isaiah 14, it tells us how, how Satan thinks. He says, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. I'm going to be like God, in other words. This is what he thought of himself. Now, you remember Satan was the highest of God's created beings. He was beautiful, and he was intelligent, and he had all kinds of capacities. And so he was so, in, he was so enamored with himself that he was caught up thinking he could replace God. And then in Genesis 3, 5, he says, for God knows when he's talking to Eve about when she questioned whether she, she should eat of this fruit of the tree, which God says, don't eat of this fruit. If the day that you do, you will surely die. And Satan tells her this, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He was right. They did because they had experienced evil and it was the downfall of the human race. And then he so he tempts us to act independently of God because that's what he's done. Then he tempts us to become discouraged You know the book of Job. I'm sure all of you have read the book of Job, and it's an incredible story. And it's about a man who experienced, he was a man after God's own heart, and yet he experienced real discouragement because of the things that were happening to him. And his best friends were telling him that the reason you're suffering like this is because God has turned against you, because he knows what's going on in your heart that you won't confess and you won't admit. 
Well, Job knew nothing about, nothing about any kind of rebellion in his heart, so he was confused, and he got discouraged, and he wants to discourage us. He says, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, but keep on speaking. He was in the midst of preaching the gospel and getting a lot of opposition, and God says to him, the Lord Jesus Christ says to him, keep on speaking, don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in the city. Now, I was reading this one time to, to a group, and a guy says, he started explaining what that meant. That meant that, that Jesus had a bunch of people on his side in the city, and so he would fight for Paul. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I have many people that I'm going to save in this city. These are people that I have put my love upon, and I'm going to bring them to faith in Christ. So keep on preaching the gospel. Many people are going to be saved here. And then he tempts to cowardice in spiritual things. Who do you think of in the Bible that's a surprise that he succumbed to this attack of Satan, that he became a coward, he became afraid, and he turned against Christ? You remember who that was? Peter, the apostle Peter, who was a very tough guy and full of vim and vigor, and yet when he came under satanic attack, he succumbed to it. Um, it, it I don't know if I put this in your notes or not, but... His cowardice is manifested in John thirteen thirty seven. Um, this is what this is what the Bible says about cowardice. It says, "For God has not given us a spirit of timidity." He's write this to, to Timothy, who was who was who tended to be timid and afraid in in difficult situations. But he, but Paul says to him, "God hasn't given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of discipline." Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Or of, or of me, his prisoner. I've thought about this often, that the Apostle Paul's in prison. You know, we just kind of take that in stride, but I was thinking, what if a person that was discipling me all of a sudden was in prison and I get a letter from him? Would that bother me? Would it bother me that he was in prison? Would I want to stay away from him so I wouldn't be shamed by this? A man I was looking up to who was suffering in prison? But, but Paul says, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord over me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. This is amazing. You're following, you come to, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you begin following a man who's discipling you, and he goes to prison. How confident would you be that you made a good decision? Now, Peter's cowardice came about when Jesus was arrested. Peter had said to Jesus, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. <laughs> Which he didn't do. And it says, having, been, having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. He's talking about them taking Jesus in before the high priest. And Peter was following at a distance, watching what was happening to Jesus. And then in Luke twenty two fifty seven, a young lady, just a young lady, came to him and said, are you one of his disciples? And he responded this way. He denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. Jesus had told him, you're going to deny me three times before the cock crows. That is before the morning alarm goes off. That's what they look to those cock crowing in the morning to wake them up. I don't need one of those. I wake up right on time, about four o'clock. 
and then I'm sleepy all day. <laughs> but he denied it. Woman, I, I don't even know this man. And Jesus explains what happened to him. This is what Jesus said. Here was his problem. He told him this before. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now, the Bible tells us that Satan can't get by with anything without asking the Father. He has to ask God for permission to do what he does. And surprisingly, God gives him permission. Surprising to us, but not after we read the word and we find out that God uses the enemies of God to accomplish his good purposes. Jesus died for your sins because his enemies thought they had defeated him and they were going to get rid of him and crucify him. They had no idea that that death on the cross after his, the cruelty with which they treated him, his death on the cross was to be the basis of your salvation. In Luke twenty-two thirty-two, 32, he says, I, but I have prayed for you, uh, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And, and you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. <laughs> Isn't that great? He says, you are going to fail, but when you're turned, when the Spirit brings you to repentance, strengthen your brothers, because they've seen you fail. And then Peter's advice to us, after he went through this, many years later, he wrote a book, First Peter, and uh, he says in this book, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He knew this because he had experienced it. And so he says, be alert. Every time Satan is mentioned in the New Testament and his attacks on us, it tells us we need to be sober and alert. We need to be clear-minded because Satan comes against us in ways that we don't recognize. And so he tempts us to be cowards. He tempts us to, uh, to turn because we are afraid. And we're afraid that it's going to be too costly for us to follow Jesus Christ in this situation. And then he tempts us to lie. You, you're all familiar with Acts chapter 5 when, uh, when Ananias and Sapphira they were so impressed with the way the people treated Barnabas when he sold a piece of land and gave all the money to the, to the church in Jerusalem. Now, the church in Jerusalem was filled with people that were from another part of the world. They had come there for Pentecost just to celebrate Pentecost, but they heard the gospel and they became believers in Jesus Christ, 3,000 of them. Now, what would it be like, we're a little church in, in Knights in California, what, ha- what would happen if, if 3,000 people all of a sudden came to faith in Christ who were traveling and came to, to Knightson for vacation? <laughs> and and they, they get saved, and then we've got 3,000 people that we need to help. And so this is what was going on in that church, is there were 3,000 people who had become followers of Jesus, and now here they were hanging out with these Christians in Jerusalem. And so people began to help them. And Barnabas, whose name means encouragement, had a piece of land, an extra piece of land. And he sold it, and he gave all the money to the church to take care of these people. And Ananias and Sapphira noticed this, and they thought, I wish... These people would treat us like that. I wish this church would think that highly of us as they do of Barnabas. 
And so they sold a piece of land. They come to Peter and they say, here is all the money we received from the land. And they give it to him. Well, the spirit spoke to Peter and told him this was not all the money. They are lying to you and therefore lying to God. And so he confronts them. And he says to them that, you know, when, it, when you had the land, it was yours. You didn't have to sell it. When you had the money, you didn't have to give it. Why would you lie to the spirit of God? You're not lying to man. You're lying to, the, to God himself when you do that. What happened to them? They died. They were stricken by the living God. Why did he do that? Why would God do that? Uh, I was listening this morning to a discussion between a couple of guys. One of them is a very well-known preacher. I don't want to mention his name, but he was arguing that we shouldn't say, I believe this because it's in the Bible, or I trust the Bible, because there's things in the Bible that offend people. And therefore, we should say, John said, but never say, I got this from the Bible because they think, oh, no, you're one of those. You believe that stuff? Do you believe that, that, that God created the, the heavens and the earth in six days? Is that even possible? Well, that's what the text says. And so those of us who are so naive as to believe that the Bible is the word of God, as it says, we believe that's true. We can't explain it. We can't explain how God could do that other than the fact that he spoke it into existence. So we believe the Bible. They were arguing, and he was arguing that we should never say, well, this is what I believe because this is what the Bible says. Well, uh, the Bible tells us that God struck Ananias and Sapphira down and they died. And it would be easy for people to say, well, I don't know if I'd want to serve a God like that. He's kind of severe, isn't he? And Peter says to them, well, it, well, it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard this, as Ananias heard this, he fell down and breathed his last. Great fear came upon all who heard of it. All the people in the church in Jerusalem, the very first local church, 3,000 people had come to faith in Christ at the very beginning of it. And they all feared. That's exactly what God was producing. He was producing a seriousness in their life. This is the God of the universe. What he wants to do, he can speak it into existence. And we trust him. Henry, if you remember, the serpent said to the woman when he tempted her to, to eat of the tree of the, the, of the knowledge of good and evil, which God says, don't eat of this tree. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the, the serpent says to the woman when she tells him this, you will not die. He's a liar. Satan loves to lie to people and he loves to convince them of untruth. In John 8, 44, Jesus said, you are the father, you have your father, the devil, and you, want to, and you want to do the desires of your father. He's speaking to people who are against him and refuse to hear his word. He goes on, he says, he was a murderer from the beginning. That is, Satan was a murderer from the beginning. 
and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Expect to be lied to by Satan when he attacks you because that's his specialty. He's a liar. And he's he's always going to tell you that the word of God isn't true. You can't believe that book. Do you know the kind of nonsense that's in this book? They say. I always ask when a person says, you know, I don't don't really believe the Bible. There's things in there that contradict. And I say, well, which thing are you talking about? I have never in all my life, and I probably have had that experience maybe 25 times. I've never had one person say, oh, I'm talking about this and gave me a specific Example of a contradiction in the word of God. In Revelation 20, it says he will come, that is Satan himself in the last days will come to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's what his future is, we're told in scripture. So he tempts us to lie, but there are dire consequences to it. Next, he tempts tempts believers to be proud. 1 Timothy 3.6 says, that when you choose an elder, he must not be a recent convert or, may, or he may become conceited and fall into the same judgment as the devil. And so you wait until a man has maturity in his life. And then it's not only does he tempt them all these, he also tempts believers to, to have an unforgiving attitude. An unforgiving attitude. Now, what's... To me, what's really um, amazing about this is that this is the truth of the word of God. God wants you to forgive people who do the wrong thing towards you. And you say, well, of course, if they apologize and ask for my forgiveness, I'll give my forgiveness. No, I want you to know that the Bible teaches that you should forgive them before they even ask for forgiveness. Amazing, isn't it? That seems crazy. Shouldn't you wait until they repent and beg your forgiveness? In, in Ephesians 4.32, this book we're looking at, he says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Forgive the way God does. We're told in, in Matthew 18, I want, to, I want you to turn there with me, Matthew 18, for just a second, which I haven't found yet. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, that is to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Now you know exactly what Jesus says to him. Jesus says to him, I did not say to you up to seven times, but 70 times seven. Now I know you haven't been in math class a long time, but how much is that? 490? Can you imagine somebody sinning against you 490 times and you forgiving them every time? And obviously what Jesus is saying, I didn't give you a limitation. You forgive. Now it's true, he's talking about here, a person sinning against you, then coming to you and say, could you forgive me? And you were to forgive him. In Matthew 6, if you remember, since we're in Matthew, it's easy to find Matthew 6. You just turn back a little ways. 
to Matthew 6. And in Matthew 6 is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's really the disciples' prayer. He's teaching them how to pray. And this is what he says to them, beginning in verse 8 of Matthew 6. So do, do not do like them. Don't pray like the pagans do, which is a lot of words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need even before you ask. Now, you've you got to read that carefully. You, he knows what you need. What we usually want to know is, does he know what I want? And this is what Jesus tells them. This is how he tells them to pray. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, our debts. The word trespass is one of the words for sin, but it emphasizes this. It's an act of disobedience to God, which produces a debt not only to God, but to the person you have you've trespassed against. You have failed to meet up to your obligation to them. Trespass means to fall down alongside of where you ought to be. For example, um, Jesus says to us in John 13, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another the way I've loved you. Now Jesus hasn't even gone to the cross yet, but he's going and they're going to see it. And he's telling them to love each other in the same way. What would that mean? That would mean we're supposed to love each other as though you're so important to me, I would be willing to die for you. Of course, he tells husbands to love their wives that way before. And then he gives this new commandment because he tells us, husbands, love your wives. Paul says, like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's my, I'm required to love my wife that way. And, uh, and so Jesus says, when you pray, this is how you pray. Forgive us of our trespasses, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debt came because we failed to meet up to our obligation. This word could even include, I didn't pay my rent this month. I didn't make my payment. You have a debt, and you have to pay that debt. Well, I have a debt to my wife. I'm supposed to love her the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. But when I pray and ask God for forgiveness, he says I should pray as we have also forgiven our debtors. And then he explains in verse 14, for if you forgive others for their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your trespasses. Wow, that's, a, that's crazy, isn't it? You, that if you don't forgive those who've trespassed against you, God won't forgive you for your trespasses against him? Is that what he's saying? Sounds like it, doesn't it? Why would he do that to his children? I mean, we believe in the perseverance of the saints. It's better than eternal security. We believe that we're going to pursue our faith to the very end and spend eternity with Christ and the Father and the Spirit. So what he's telling us is, is that this is the normal way of living for believers. We forgive each other. Now, I got to tell you, I can say this with confidence 
And yet, it's one of the hardest things in my life. I would say, in fact, this week, I ran into this young lady who had gone through some really difficult time, and I knew about it. And I said to her, uh, it just came out of me kind of spontaneously. And I said, you know, what you should do as a Christian when people treat you wrong is to forgive them. And surprisingly, she says to me, she smiles, she says, I know it. I know that. And I thought, wow. That, that's an amazing thing for her to know, isn't it? An 18-year-old, she knows that when somebody mistreats you, when somebody sins against you, that you should forgive them. That's what the Bible says. We are to forgive each other. That's to be the characteristic of the church. That's why church fights, arguments, failures to forgive is so out of place. We are to forgive one another. Now, what we like to do is argue about it. We like to argue that we, meant, that we didn't do anything wrong. You're taking it wrong. You're not taking this right. <laughs> I, had a, I had a lady who sent me an email one time. Is John Taylor here? John uh, has a habit of when the time changes. I love you, John. Uh, when the, when the clocks change, he always comes an hour late. It's amazing. We've been, in, we've been in existence for 21 years, and he's done this 21 times. And uh, he did it this year, and I made some wisecrack, which I'm really, I rarely do, but I made some wisecrack about him, about him not setting his clock. And this lady sent me a, a, te a text, and she said, you've told us that when we see something in you that needs to change, that we should tell you. And I did. And uh, I said, thank you. I appreciate that. You're right. I just, it, you know, we're such good friends that it just came out of me like nothing, right in front of everybody. <laughs> and so if you can imagine a visitor being there thinking, man, I wouldn't go to that church. <laughs> you never know what that guy might say to you. But John, I called and asked his forgiveness, and he just laughed and said, there was no offense taken. You don't have to ask for my forgiveness. But I did. I did have to. And he forgave me. He counted it as nothing. You see, we, we offend each other often. The Bible says it's so easy to offend each other. But I want to give you permission as believers that you can forgive people even before. You know, sometimes the hardest thing you have to do is to sell somebody you think what they did was wrong. That's hard to do, isn't it? Sometimes it's easier just to pass over and say nothing. It's cowardice, but Satan t tempts us to be cowards. But the fact is, I'm free to forgive when I've been wronged. I don't have to take offense. I can forgive. Now, I may want to talk to you because just like this lady did, she wanted me to know because she thought I needed to know that that was inappropriate. And I took that rebuke and I received it because I knew she was, she was right. She was correct. It would have been fine if I had gone up to John in private and said that to him. We would have both laughed. But to say that in front of this whole audience to a man of great dignity... <laughs> I knew he'd give me that look. Uh, he, uh, he, 
He deserved better. I respect him highly. And, um, but we have, the, we, have the, we have the ability and we have the freedom to forgive. See, that's the mark of the Church of Jesus Christ. This is a forgiving community. We're supposed to be a forgiving community. We're supposed to manifest this. Whenever I hear about someone forgiving someone else, someone who's been greatly offended and then they forgive the person, it's so encouraging to me because that's what he's called us to do, to be those kind of people. Uh, How slow was God in forgiving you of your sins when you turned to Christ in faith? Did it take him a couple weeks? Did he forgive you immediately? Yes, he did. Amazing, huh? That he forgives us. In fact, we're told if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous. It's the right thing for him to do, to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, Satan wants to destroy you as a believer Uh, One of the ways that he attacks us is he tempts us to steal. Ephesians 4.27 says these, I'm sorry, this is Luke 8.12, Jesus telling the story of of the sower that went out to sow. And he says, these beside the road, those who fell along the path that didn't penetrate the earth and they bore no no fruit. He says, these beside the road represent those who have heard the gospel. And the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so they will not believe and be saved. Isn't that stunning? How many times have you a witness to somebody and you thought it just went right over their head? It had no penetration whatsoever. Well, have you ever thought it may be one of Satan's ways that he loves to remove the gospel from the mind of a person who's been just told about the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on behalf of people. He tempts us, he, he uh, tries us by doing that. Uh, he tempts believers to use unwholesome speech. Let me explain this. I one time was talking to a guy and he was using a lot of profanity and he's a professing believer and I said something about it and he says, oh, you're, that's ridiculous. This is just how people talk. And I said, you know, you're the only guy I know that talks like that. But, uh, <laughs> but the fact is, Satan tempts you to use unwholesome speech. In Ephesians 4.29, it says, let no unwholesome speech proceed from your mouth. And the word unwholesome means rotten, corrupt. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. What is edification? What does that mean? To build up. It means to encourage, to build up. And so he says, the speech I ought to use is speech that builds up, that encourages, that helps, that builds into a person's life. We're told in in the little book of Jude, the way we keep ourselves in the love of God as the people of God is that we do a couple things. First of all, we build one another up in the most holy faith. And that expression used by Jude there is used a couple times in the New Testament, always refers to the New Testament. The truth that's revealed in the New Testament about Jesus Christ. We are to use, we are to build one another up so that you have a way 
But you, you learn how to use speech that builds people up, that encourages them, that makes them like Christ. In fact, we're told when you don't, it grieves the Holy Spirit. And then he says, who has sealed us to the day of redemption. You're, you are grieving the Spirit who is keeping you and keeping that person that you're speaking to. And then, just two more, he tempts, he tempts people, Christians, to, to gossip. First Timothy 5.13, which says at the same time they also learn to be idle as they go around. He's talking, I hate to say this, I should, I'll probably get in trouble, but he's talking about women, young women in the church. And he says that Satan deceives them in this way. He, they go around and learn to be idle instead of taking care of their own family. And they go around from house to house and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies. You know what a busybody is? A busybody is somebody that doesn't do their work, but they they always are in everybody else's business. Talking about things that, that are not proper to mention, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. Satan is the source of this. He wants to corrupt your mind, your heart, and your speech. Instead of thinking about the person you're speaking to and saying, you know, I want to use words that build up and don't tear down. I want to use the kind of language that encourages people and causes people to follow Christ and understand. The reason that we got that little plaque for Joan is because I love that. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. First Thessalonians chapter 5. I wish I had a better record than I, than I have. You don't know it, but my wife does. I don't curse because I, my mom taught me when I was a little boy. She wouldn't let me say gee or gosh because she said they were euphemisms for God and Jesus. That's a little bit over the top, huh? But she, she, wouldn't, she wouldn't answer me if I called her mom. I had to call her mother. But guess what? I love her. She's in heaven now. She was one of the best things in my life. She's the one who shared the gospel with me. She's the one who talked to me about walking with Christ, living for Christ. And so I am so grateful for that. And you know what? I don't say gee and gosh. It's weird. I don't cuss. But it isn't because I'm so holy. I just had a mother who doggedly kept after me until I just never developed that habit. I don't get any points for that. I understand. But I'm glad that I'm not fighting that battle. I really am. I've talked to Christian men sometimes who slip and say some of the most off-the-wall stuff, and then they'll apologize to me. And And I think, well... You don't need to apologize to me. Just go to the Spirit and tell him you want him to guard your mouth. You want him to speak through you. You want him to use you as an instrument in his hands so that he can use you to build up fellow believers, to cause them to grow instead of stunting their growth. The last thing I just want to mention is the armor. The purpose of the armor, and he talks about the armor, and I'll show you what he refers to it as, Its purpose is to enable us to stand in the evil day. The evil day is simply the day that Satan comes against us. He's not, he's not, he doesn't attack us all the time. He attacks us in what's called the evil day. 
There are times when we are very vulnerable. And I might say this, I think the Bible's clear. If I am not walking with Christ and I am no threat to Satan, he'll probably leave me alone. Pretty much, other than wanting me to be his. He wants to have control of us. But if you're not walking in the spirit and you're not witnessing to people and you're not living the Christian life, you probably won't have as much of these things as those who are attempting to live their lives for the glory of Christ. He's going to come against you on the evil day. And so you have to put the armor on. And the purpose of the armor is so you can stand in this evil day when he comes against you. Its nature is, it's designed to meet the need. How can I possibly resist the smartest, most intelligent, most glorious creature that God ever created? Except for you and me, because we were created in the image of God. But this, this covering angel, as he's called, was an incredible being. And so the nature of this armor is to meet the need of standing against someone so sneaky and so capable and so powerful. One of the, we talked about this. One of the ways that his attacks are described is their thoughts. He wants us to think in a certain way. And he suggests them to us in very subtle ways. So the armor is made up of attitudes that the believer needs to put on in standing against Satan's suggestions. The way we appropriate it, obviously God's power is sufficient to enable us to stand against Satan. That's what Ephesians 6, 10 through 11 says. But how do we appropriate this power? By putting on the full armor of God. It's our defense against Satan. And by putting on the full armor of God, we have the only defense there is to stand against the onslaughts of Satan in our life. No degree of human intelligence is equal to the cunning of Satan. He is incredibly effective. But the armor provided for us is perfectly adequate to meet every strategy Satan has. In Ephesians 6, 14 through 17, this passage we're looking at, it indicates that the armor has to be put on before you're able to stand. And listen to what he says. He he has these kind of phrases in verse 14. It says, having already girded your loins with truth. Let me explain that, girding your loins. We don't use that a lot. Girding the loins was the way that men in that culture, when they got ready to work or they got ready to move very quickly, they girded up their loins, which meant that they, these long flowing garments they wore, like they were like dresses, they would pull them through their legs and bring it up and tie it around their waist so it no longer, wasn't, it kept, it no longer kept them from movement. They could move quickly and swiftly, but it looked like a big diaper. Now, that would be humiliating, wouldn't it, in our culture? But he says, having girded up your loins uh, with truth. So he's talking about your thought life here. Girding up the loins of your mind. You gird up the loins of your mind with truth. You have to believe the truth. And you say, well, where do I get the truth? Where do I get the truth? Through the word of truth. This is the word of truth. The reason we study the Bible, first of all, is to find out what it actually says. It takes a little work. You have to dig in a little bit. We've we've got so many good translations that are very helpful to you. Uh, And this is a New American Standard. But there are other good translations. 
And you need a good translation that you can understand. You need to begin to dig into it and understand what these words mean. You run into a, a, a passage of scripture that is teaching you about something really significant. You need to find out exactly what does it mean. I need to dig a little bit. I need to think. And nothing helps more than simply doing this with fellow believers to talk about the word of God together. And this is why Jude says, if you want to keep yourselves in the love of God, come together and build one another up in the most holy faith. This is, this is just a normal practice of living the Christian life, is being a part of a group that builds one another up in the most holy faith, that we actually talk to each other about the things of God. I can remember when that was way too scary for me to even talk about the things of God because I didn't want to reveal that I didn't know anything. But it's okay because I've never been made fun of by Christians because I didn't know enough. And believe me, there were many, many times when I knew hardly anything. But they were so gracious because they wanted me to come to understand the word of God. I have a friend who has a PhD from Oxford. He's very smart. And um, he's done a whole lot of Bible study, written several books, has produced a lot of stuff. We went to seminary together. And we used to sit out in his car. We went through Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8 together, word for word in the Greek text. And and I was I, I had taken Greek, but I didn't I didn't know how to read it like he could. He could he can basically open the Bible anywhere in the Old Testament, New Testament. In the Old Testament, read it in Hebrew or Aramaic. In the New Testament, read it in Greek. And it was wonderful. I I learned so much, and I was so grateful. When I get around him, I'm a little, I'm a little intimidated. And we start talking about the Bible, and he says, "You know, this is a this is a, a perfect passive." And I'm thinking, okay, perfect passive, perfect passive, perfect passive. Well, it, what, what, so what's the implication? And he begins to tell me, well, I praise God for that. I praise God for people who want to help one another to come to understand the word of God. You don't have to take Greek. You don't have to take Hebrew. But if you want to, it'd be a good thing. <laughs> it would be very helpful. My, the, first Hebrew, the first Greek class I ever taught was in my home. We still have the, the, the dining room table. And on the dining room table are the markings of a guy, John Fernandes, who's a pastor in Napa, who was taking the class and he was doing a test. And he bore down so hard, he left his imprint on that table. And we can still see it. I thought it was his brother, Steve. But he finally confessed to me, no, it was him. He did it. And I'm telling you, those were, those were wonderful times meeting with believers and talking about the text of Scripture. What does it mean? What does all this mean? Now, where can you find reality? Well, listen to this. This is Ephesians 4, 20 and 21. Christ is the answer, but you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught through him, just as the truth is in Jesus. In other words, the way that you learn truth is through Jesus Christ. Where in the world is Jesus? You know what the Bible says? It says we don't, say bring, we, have to, we don't have to say bring him up from the grave. We don't have to say bring him down from heaven. Where is he? He's right here. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's your source of truth. 
So you come to the word of God knowing that the very one about whom this is written resides in you, and you, so you look at the book, and you read it, and you take it seriously, you try to take it in and understand it. You have the living Christ in you to help you, and he's going to teach you exactly what you need to know. Um, and so he goes on. I'm just going to read these, and I'll stop and let you go. I'm sorry for keeping you so long. Um, Having girded your loins with truth, a believer under siege must see things as they really are, and so we have to find it, and we find it in Christ. And then having put on the breastplate of righteousness, I have to understand where my righteousness comes from, because Satan's going to tell me it comes from my good works. He's going to tell me it comes from my efforts. That's not where my righteousness comes from. Where does it come from? Same answer, Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's Christ. You have the righteousness of Christ. And he goes on, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Are you ready to share the gospel? You know, uh, I I read this thing the other day. A guy said he's done this about 20 times with different groups. And he says to them, how many times have you heard the gospel presented? And And he says, sometimes people say, oh, I grew up in church. I probably heard it a thousand times. And then he says, okay, so you've heard it many, many times. So you actually are an expert, aren't you? And then he says, I'd like you to write out the gospel on this half sheet of paper. And he says, you would not believe the answers that I get on those things. The people think they know the gospel, and it's not even close to the gospel. What is the gospel? Well, let me give you a little hint. Go to, go to 1 Corinthians 15. You don't have to turn there now, but go to 1 Corinthians 15, and it tells you specifically what the good news is. It's that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. It says, and he was buried. That proves he was dead, you know. And he was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And he ascended to the Father. And the good news about it is he came to do that in order to set us free from the bondage we were in and the sin that we were in. And those of us who have received it said, amen. That's what you're supposed to say, amen. It's the truth, isn't it? It's really the truth. And then he, so he says, your feet should be shod with the preparation of the gospel. I should be ready to share the gospel. I, I want to pass the gospel on. And you've got to get over this fact that you want people to be impressed with you. When you tell them, you know, Jesus died for your sins, he was buried and rose again. And you want them to say, wow, you're a Bible scholar, huh? I had a guy one time say to me, and it really boosted my ego. And then when I walked away, I realized, that's stupid. He said to me, you really believe this stuff, don't you? What he meant was, you're really an idiot, aren't you? <laughs> but but uh, that's, that's what we are doing when we are sharing the gospel. We're sharing what has penetrated our hearts, and we want others to know it. And then he says, put on the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The word word here is a little Greek word called, that's translated rhema, and it means his utterances, what he has said his specific saying, his specific saying. I can't get over how much the Bible speaks to me about very, just very clear, uh, short, cryptic, just little commands of what I should do. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, and God will guide your path. Isn't that something? I told my daughter yesterday, I was reading the Bible, and it said, those who sow in tears will reap in joy. 
And I came out and I was talking to her and I was kind of teary-eyed and everything. And she says, are you okay? I said, yeah. I said, I was just reading in scripture how I feel about my relationship with you. It says, those who sow in tears will reap in joy. I've sown a lot of tears telling her the gospel. And one of these days, I don't have any doubts about it. In fact, she told me right then, this is what she said to me. (laughs) She says, Dad, I want you to know, I know Jesus Christ. He is my Savior. I know I should be going to church. I know that. But I know I'm saved. Well, since I tell people, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You have to go to Christ to be a Christian, no. You have to come to him. And I I hope her testimony is true. I really do. But I'm going to keep praying for her because I want to reap in joy. I want to see the evidence in a life that is speaking out for the truth to people. I want that for you and me. This is a very unimpressive little little church, isn't it? We got what? We're really small. We meet in this little school building that everybody, nobody ever heard of the city we live in. And yet we're the people of God. Isn't that amazing? We're the people of God. And we actually love each other. We actually care about each other. And we've been given the formula for how we keep ourselves in the love of God. That means how do you keep yourself being loved by God? I told somebody, I said, uh, God loves you the way a parent loves his child. It's, they love them because of who they are to them. And he says, yeah, I've heard you say that before. I said, it's true. That's why God loves you. It's not because you've performed well, because you haven't, you scoundrel. But he loves you because of who you are to him. And that's how I have three children and 10 grandchildren and four great-grandchildren, and I love them. And they've never done much for me. (laughs) But I love them because of who they are to me. And, you know, when you're five years old, what are you going to do for the old man? I understand that. But I just want you to, I want you to know that Satan is against you, but you have access to the, to the armor, the armor of God. What Charles Stanley says, he says, you can put the armor on in bed every morning before you go out. And I understand what he's saying. I think it's a good idea. But the fact is we're supposed to put it on the evil day. And it seems as though what God is saying to us is he lets us know when we are entering into an evil day when Satan wants to come against us. He wants to undermine our faith. He wants to keep us from believing even the truth that we already know. Sometimes what happens to us in the midst of things in in life, we go, wait a minute, what am I doing why am I thinking this way? This is, a total, this is a total lie. It's totally against everything I believe. And come to my senses. So I, I want to pray for you, and then I'll let you go. And, and uh, I do have some notes over there if you'd like to get a copy, some detailed copies of this doctrine of uh, the attacks of Satan and what God has provided for us. But let me pray. Our Father, I come before you now for these dear brothers and sisters. Some of them I don't even know, but I ask, Father, that you would come in power and work in their lives, that you would give them confidence in the truth of the gospel, that the reason we believe the gospel is because we believe with all of our heart that it's true, 
that Jesus really did come into this world and he went through exactly what he had to go through in order to be our savior. And we thank you for him saving us simply by faith. We simply believed on him. We put our trust in him and you gave us eternal life. And now we rejoice in that possession, Father. We rejoice in the fact that we have eternal life. So I pray, bless this group of people. I pray you'd keep your hand upon them, that you would uh, communicate to them the truth of who they are to you. You love them because of who they are to you. And they might think, well, who and I? I'm nobody to God. Yes, you are. Because you said in, in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And Father, we thank you for this freedom to be able to announce that Jesus Christ died for sinners. He died for us. And we can turn to you in faith in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would, you would cause this message to sink deep into our hearts. And we'll give you praise and adoration in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.